1 Samuel chapter 14. We're going to be looking at the first 23 verses. And so if you have a copy of God's perfect and holy word with you, I invite you to follow along. If you don't, we will have it on the screen up there. And so you can uh, uh, follow along with me uh, in that way. So let's read what the Holy Spirit writes under the pen of uh, whoever this, uh, this author is. That same day, Saul's son Jonathan said to the attendant who carried his weapons, Come on, let's cross over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. However, he did not tell his father. Saul was staying under the pomegranate tree in Migran on the outskirts of the Gibeah. The troops with him numbered about 600. Ahijah, who was wearing an ephod, was also there. He was the son of Ahitub, the brother of Ichabod, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the Lord's priest at Shiloh. But the troops did not know that Jonathan had left. There were sharp columns of rock on both sides of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine garrison. One was named Bozes and the other Sine. One stood to the north of the Michmash and the other to the south in front of Geba. Jonathan said to the attendant who carried his weapons, come on, let's cross over to the garrison of these uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will save us. Nothing can keep the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. His armor bearer responded, do what's in your heart. Go ahead, I'm completely with you. All right, Jonathan replied, we'll cross over to the men and then let them see us. If they say, wait until we reach you, then we will stay where we are and not go up to them. But if they say, come up, then we'll go up because the Lord has handed them over to us. That will be our sign. They let the garrison, uh, they let themselves be seen by the Philistine garrison. And the Philistines said, look, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they've been hiding. The men of the garrison called to Jonathan and his armor bearer, come on up and we'll teach you a lesson. They said, follow me. Uh, follow me, Jonathan told his armor bearer, for the Lord has handed them over to Israel. Jonathan climbed up using his hands and his feet with his armor bearer behind him. Jonathan cut them down. His armor bearer followed and finished them off. In that first assault, Jonathan and his armor bearer struck down about 20 men in half an acre field. Terror spread through the Philistine camp and the open fields to all the troops. Even the garrison and the raiding parties were terrified. The earth shook and terror spread from God. When Saul's watchmen in Gibeah of Benjamin looked and saw them panicking, the panicking troops scattered in every direction. So Saul said to the troops with them, call the roll and determine who has left us. They called the roll and saw that Jonathan and his armor bearer were gone. Saul told Ahijah, bring the ark of God, for it was with the Israelites at that time. While Saul spoke to the priest, the panic in the Philistine camp increased in intensity. So Saul said to the priest, stop what you're doing. Saul and all the troops with him assembled and marched to the battle, and there the Philistines were fighting against each other in great confusion. There were Hebrews from the area who had gone earlier into the camp to join the Philistines, but even they joined the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. When all the Israelite men who had been hiding in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they also joined Saul and Jonathan in battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day. Let's pray. God, we ask that you, through your spirit, would help us to be people who are faithful to you in all things that we do, that you would take these words that, that, that I have prepared and that they would be lined up with the words that you have uh, inspired in your word and that we would 
leave here more motivated to be faithful toward you, God. And it's in Jesus' name that I ask this. Amen. Well, they say that experience is the best teacher, and I have certainly uh, learned that after 13 and a half years in, in ministry. Uh, there were times, especially early in my ministry, that I wish I had been more careful, that I wish I had been more, more thoughtful, uh, more loving, more biblically strategic, more Holy Spirit-led. Uh, there are things that I, I wish I would have said and things that I, I, I wish that I could, uh, I could take back, things that I wish I hadn't done uh, and things that I wish that I, that I had done. Uh, there were hurts that could have been avoided, bridges that could have been uh, mended. And even though I look back and regret and remorse on a lot of those things, I'm actually glad that those things happened because uh, it made me be a better pastor, and God has taught me how to be a better Christian uh, through them. And I thought about a lot of those lessons as I studied our passage uh, this week. If there's a banner statement for this passage, it would be the title of this sermon, Lessons Learned and Lessons Ignored. I know it's different on your outline, uh, but I changed it as I got closer to finishing this up. This passage is all about the contrast between Radical faith and persistent unbelief. Half of it details a guy named Jonathan, uh, the king's son, who had been so gripped by God's glory that he was willing to risk everything, even his own life, by faith. The other half deals with King Saul, who had been gripped by a different kind of glory, the glory of self-reliance and superstition. And as I got deeper into what is happening here at the heart level, I couldn't help but be humbled by Jonathan's ability to throw caution to the wind in his radical pursuit of God and God's glory. And when I reflected on King Saul, I found it all too easy to be quick to judge. How in the world is it possible that he can continue to make the same mistakes over and over and over again as we've seen and we will see? How is it possible that he didn't learn from these mistakes and flaws in order to be a, a better leader for his people? And it's at that point that I understood all too well, because I can tell you of all the lessons that I have learned and all the past mistakes that, that I, have, I have made and learned from and that have changed me, there are just as many that I still hold on to today. I am King Saul, and you are too. And thankfully, the help that I need and the help that you need is exactly what this passage will point us to in the person, the work of Jesus Christ. In the contrast between Jonathan and Saul, we don't find a moralistic push to be like one or the other because in truth, we can't be like Jonathan. We have too much of Saul in us. But in Jonathan, he will point us to a Savior whose radical faith and obedient faith was strong enough and powerful enough to overcome our lack of faith and persistent unbelief. This morning, we only have two lessons that we should learn to uh, point us towards faith and, uh, and our only source of righteousness. And the first is that we need to make faith a verb. Make faith a verb. The previous chapter, in chapter 13, uh, it, it marked a, a turning point in the book of Samuel. In the beginning of the chapter, uh, Saul was riding on the, the fame of his previous uh, 
uh, victory in battle and the approval of the people. And in his arrogance last week, we had seen that he had uh, cut down his military from 330,000 down to just 3,000. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, 1,000 of those went with Jonathan to attack a, a Philistine garrison, and 2,000 stayed with, uh, with Saul. And in Jonathan's battle and in his victory, really all that happened was that he poked the bear, that he got the Philistines angry, and it was like a swarm of bees getting hit in the hive. And Saul, in his panic and his superstition, uh, if you uh, recall, uh, circumnavigated the proper protocol by making a burnt offering and offering it up to himself. This was something that was only reserved for the priests and the priestly family to do, but he took it upon himself uh, to, to do this. And as a consequence, Samuel laid out the fact that Saul's kingdom is not going to endure. Yes, he will finish out his kingship, but there will be no monarchy that comes from the line of King Saul. Rather, it will be through the line of a man that God himself has chosen. Now, in chapter 13, it ends on a very desperate note. The Philistines have broken their army into three parts. They are surrounding the Israelites. One side is going to come alongside to, to flank them and take them out. And the most important detail that we're left with in chapter 13 is the fact that the Israelites don't even have any weapons. The only weapons are in the hands of Jonathan and his father, the, the, the king. But here it is that we might see desperation and imminent defeat. It's Jonathan that actually sees an opportunity for God to be God. Chapter 14 now begins in a very unusual way. Up to this point, we have seen nothing but disobedient children. We've seen it in the children of the priests of Eli who perverted the sacrifice. We saw it even in the children of, uh, of Samuel who could not uh, come after him because of their disobedience as well. But now in verse 1, we find that Jonathan makes a bold move by doing something that the king, his father, would not approve of. He does it in secrecy, but his rebellion ends up being the right thing to do. Look at verse 1. That same day, Saul's son, Jonathan, said to the attendant who carried his weapons, come on, let's cross over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. However, he did not tell his father. So now remember here, the Israelites are in grave danger. They are about to lose a major battle, perhaps the entire war with the Philistines. But verse 2 informs us that the king is doing nothing but sitting under a, a, a pomegranate tree. And I, Trust me, I like pomegranates and all. But if you're under a threat, you're not going to want to just sit under a tree and wait for things to happen. And not only that, but Samuel has left him as well as a spiritual advisor. And notice who Saul has attached himself to in verse 3. It's some shady characters. Ahijah, who was wearing an ephod, which is his priestly garb, was also there. Well, what's the big deal with that? Well, go on. He was the son of Ahitub, the brother of Ichabod, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the Lord's priest at Shiloh. I just mentioned Eli just a few minutes ago. The priestly line that Saul had decided to align with was also the priestly line that God had rejected and cut off because of their foolishness and their, and their sin. So here is King Saul 
who is installed with the purpose of going into battle for his people, but yet he is just sitting back waiting underneath the pomegranate tree, hanging out with wicked priests and getting his spiritual insight from them. Now, Jonathan understands that they, they can't just sit there and do nothing, so he gets his right-hand man, his armor-bearer, uh, the man that he trusts more than anything, and he says, let's roll. Now, notice here, unlike his father's M.O., Jonathan is, is uh, not taking matters into his own hands. Rather, he is trusting that the Lord is going to be behind him. So understandably, he doesn't tell his father. In verse 3, it even says that the troops don't even know that Jonathan is gone. And looking at the circumstances of the voyage, uh, it would be hard to attribute any of this but to the sovereign hand of God working for Jonathan. Verses 4 through 5 inform us that if Jonathan wants to go back uh, to this next Philistine garrison, that he's going to have to pass over two very difficult mountains. The mountains are named for their qualities. The word bozes means slippery, and the word sine means thorny. So if you can imagine, if you've ever tried to to climb a, a large hill or, or even the base of a mountain. It's not easy. But Jonathan's determined here in verse 6 to not do this in his own power, but in the power that God supplies. Look at verse 6. Jonathan said to the attendant who carried his weapons, Come on, let's cross over to the garrison of these uncircumcised men. Which that's sort of a derogatory term, meaning these aren't Israelites here. Now, here's the declaration of faith. Perhaps the Lord will help us. Nothing can keep the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. So understand the picture here that Jonathan is painting, because quite honestly, it's foreign to us. This is not an easy journey. Not only is he risking his life climbing this, this slippery and thorny mountains and going in that sort of direction, but he's planning on attacking a, a garrison, which is 20 people. And it's just him and his armor bearer. Added to that, notice that he's not even 100% sure that the Lord will indeed do what he wants him to do. He says, perhaps the Lord will help us. His faith is in the fact that God is able to do it. Whether God chooses to do it or not is a whole other story. It's the same kind of faith that we see in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter 3 when Nebuchadnezzar tells them to bow down to his statue. And if they don't, they are going to be killed for it. Notice what it says in Daniel 3, verses 15 through 18. Nebuchadnezzar asked, Who is the God that can rescue you from this power, from my power? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to give you an answer to this question. If the God that we serve exists, then he can rescue us from the furnace of the blazing fire. And he can rescue us from the power of you, the king. But even if he does not rescue us, we want you as the king to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the gold statue that you set up. So maybe God will rescue Jonathan. Maybe he won't. But if not, he is still going to worship him. Maybe God will be pleased with the victory. 
Maybe he won't. Either way, he is the Lord, and so we need to do what we feel called to do based on his word. Verse 7 now, it says that his armor bearer said, do what's in your heart. I'm with you. I'm your man. Whatever you have set in your heart, I'm completely with you. And it's here that we might be inclined to uh, accuse Jonathan of being sort of superstitious. Um, and, and superstitious as his father. Look at verse 8. All right, Jonathan replied, we'll cross over to the men and let them see us. If they say, wait till we reach you, then we will stay where we're at and we'll not go up. But if they say, come on up, then, then we'll go up because the Lord has handed them over to us. That will be our sign. So the question is, is it superstitious for Jonathan to look for a certain sign? Or is he giving some sort of divine oracle here? Well, I don't think it's fair to say either because this is actually an instance of faith. Practically speaking, Jonathan and his armor bearer are better off if they stay where they're at and this garrison comes to them because then they would be on equal footing. But yet, if the garrison were to say, come up here, the garrison would have the high ground and Jonathan and his armor bearer would be fighting them in a very compromised situation. So in his mind, if they say come up here and we'll teach you a thing or two, well then, only God can actually work in that situation. So we need to reorient our thoughts about faith to be more resemblant of this. Far too often we think of faith as a possession. I have faith. Or it's a state of mental uh, agreement I have faith that X, Y, and Z. And while those things are correct, they're, they're really only part of what faith entails. A huge part of faith, and I think one that's often neglected, is one in which faith is a verb. Faith is in action. Even if we do see faith as a verb, how often do we pad, uh, pad it in, in, in safe boxes? in which we know something is going to uh, result. Instead of taking risks, we want formulas that will ensure results. We want to be good stewards of our resources, so we'll often only invest in those things that we know will, will have a, a return. We want to stay close to home in the church, and so we'll only do those things that we have done before because... Well, maybe those things worked 10, 20 years ago, and it's too risky going beyond that. That's not faith. That's pragmatism. It's just going with what works. Jonathan threw himself into a situation in which he knew that if God does not come through for him, he is in deep trouble. And maybe it's not risking your life, but when was the last time that you exercised a faith in which if God didn't come through, you might lose big. Maybe you might lose some money. Maybe you might lose a, a relationship, a family member, or, or a friend. Maybe you'll lose a lot of time. Maybe you lose face. We often reject that kind of faith as radical risky and reckless. 
But we aren't called to a safe faith. Uh, a safe faith. We are called to trust in the Lord with all of our heart and to lean not on our own understanding. The Lord is great, but the reward is greater. God's glory and our joy. So because of this risky faith, Jonathan experiences the deliverance. Look in verse 11. They let themselves be seen. The Philistines said, Look, the Hebrews are coming out of their holes where they've been hiding. The men of the garrison called up to Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come on up, we'll teach you a lesson. They said, Follow me, Jonathan told his armor bearer, for the Lord has handed them over to Israel. Can you imagine this confidence? Like, this is amazing confidence. Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet with his armor bearer behind him. Jonathan cut them down, and his armor bearer followed him and finished them off. In that first assault, Jonathan and his armor bearer struck down about 20 men in a half-acre field. So how are we to process this? I think one of the things that we should take away from this is that God works on behalf of those whose hearts are inclined toward him. That when our hearts are fully geared towards him and off of, our, off of ourself, God works. It's not a guarantee that he is going to have the result that we desire, but it does guarantee that God will do what he thinks is right. We also ought to see that God's job is the results. And our job is to have faith that he will accomplish those results through our actions. So make your faith a verb. Second, Beware of an unbelieving, superstitious faith. Beware of an unbelieving, superstitious faith. In the movie The Patriot, Benjamin Martin is a southern plantation owner uh, during the Revolutionary War, and he was known throughout the British Army as the Ghost. And it was loosely based on a real man whose nickname was the Swamp Fox, how cool of a nickname is that if you're in a battle, the Swamp Fox, who was known for his brutal guerrilla tactics against the Redcoats. And he was known uh, as the ghost after his son Gabriel had been uh, arrested for being in the, uh, the, the uh, American army and was, was carted off by this, I guess you could say a garrison, but it's, it's more of just a, um, a, uh, a brigade of troops and so Benjamin Martin, he knows the terrain of South Carolina better than these British troops do. And so he wants to go and save his son. And there's about 20 of these British uh, soldiers. And throughout this little tiny battle, him and his two little sons take out 20 members of the British fleet. Only one of them survives. And he is so dazed by this, uh, by this uh, attack that all he sees is a faint shadow of... Benjamin Martin. So when he told his superiors that a ghost attacked their, uh, their fleet, the British army ended up becoming terrified of this one that they knew as the ghost. A similar sentiment can be said after Jonathan and his armor bearer defeated the Philistine garrison here. Somehow news of this attack reached the Philistine garrison 
and uh, uh, a fear worse than the British army went through the Philistine ranks. Verse 15 says that terror spread through the Philistine camp in the open fields to all the troops. Even the garrison and the raiding parties were terrified. The earth shook and terror spread from God. So not only did the, the, the news of these two warriors uh, reach them, but notice that God himself even showed up in the battle. The earth quaked. And all of this confusion that we have here shows us the, the, sin, the antonym of belief and faith, which is disbelief. Now in verse 16, informs us that all of this bedlam and all of this, uh, this pandemonium in the Philistine camp is quickly picked up by Saul over in his camp. And if there's ever a clear opportunity for a military leader to take advantage of the situation, it is right here in this. But Saul doesn't seem too eager to act hastily. In fact, he wants to find out who is responsible for this confusion of the Philistines. Look in uh, verse 17. So Saul said to the troops with him, call the roll and determine who has left us. They called the roll and saw that Jonathan and his armor bearer were gone. So in Saul's mind here, it was Jonathan that crossed a line. It was Jonathan here that is guilty of insubordination. He didn't give orders to attack anyone. This is open defiance and a challenge to Saul's leadership. And now because of Jonathan's disobedience, Saul doesn't see this Philistine confusion as something to pounce on. Rather, he sees it as a problem that he needs to deal with. Who is defected from my ranks? So what does he do? He calls over the, the wicked and rejected priest over to bring the ark in verse 18. And it's uh, in this act that we can plainly see that Saul has not learned his lessons yet and his past failures. Just like in chapter 13, when he offered up the burnt offerings because Samuel was late and went beyond what he was allowed to do, here he now brings the ark of God out there in order to use it as a magic wand, as it might be, that might guarantee him victory. As if he is compelling God to do work simply because he brought this wooden box out. In Saul's mind, God only shows up if the superstitious formulas are correct rather than having a heart that is inclined toward the Lord in obedience toward him. He is waiting for a sign from heaven to fall into his lap rather than simply doing and acting on what is plainly in front of him. The problem with this passage is that you and I can so clearly see what's going on here. But the question is, can you clearly see this going on 
in your own heart and in your own life. We are more like Saul than we want to admit. Now make no mistake, Saul is operating on faith here. But this is a different kind of faith that Saul is operating on. He is uh, having a faith to trust in his own ability to read the signs and interpret the things that are going on. And how do we know this? Well, we see it in his erratic impatience. Look at verse 19. While Saul spoke to the priest, the panic in the Philistine camp increased in intensity. So Saul said to the priest, stop what you're doing. So see what's going on here. There, there, there's, there's chaos in the Philistine camp. There's chaos in the Israelite camp as well. Saul will not send out his troops until he thinks that the priest has completed all of the cultic rituals. And in all of this then, he finally feels the pressure and sees what's going on, believes, well, maybe now I should actually go out. And what does he do? He stops the priests mid-prayer. Stop what you're doing. Forget that. We're good to go. We've got all that stuff going. We're heading in to battle. He gets the troops, and they go. And as I said last week, the direction of the people will always follow the direction of their leadership. We saw last week that when the Philistines were threatening the Israelites, that the Israelites hid in caves and in cisterns and in all these different places away from the Philistines. And it corresponds to how Saul was hiding from his responsibility when he was crowned king. And now Saul displays his unbelief by only acting when it's safe or guaranteed, when the outcome is all but sure. And notice the Israelites that have been hiding even the ones that have defected from Israel, they are only coming out now because they see that victory is sure. They are fair-weather soldiers. Look at verse 21. There were Hebrews from the area who had gone earlier into the camp to join the Philistines. But even they joined the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. When all the Israelite men who had been hiding in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they also joined Saul and Jonathan in the battle. I mean, can you imagine a Vikings fan that would defect to be a Packer fan as long as the Packers are doing well, and as soon as the Vikings are doing well, they'll go back to the Vikings. It's much more serious in this case, but that's essentially what you're seeing here. And it's here that we need to pause for a moment and dissect what is happening in Saul's heart and whether or not any of us have the spirit of Saul inside of us. We have the spirit of Saul in us when we wear faith as a coat, but it hasn't permeated the heart. We may go through the motions. We may go through the rituals. We may use all the right words. We might do all of those things, but when the rubber meets the road, we want to trust in our own ability to read the signs of what's happening. We come out of the caves and the thickets and the rocks and the holes only when it works for us. 
We have the spirit of Saul when we're defined by safety and security and not by risk and reward for the glory of God. You cannot have faith when you're sitting underneath a pomegranate tree. Faith can only be when you're climbing the slippery and thorny rocks of the mountain, relying on the goodness and the mercy and the care and the goodness and the faithfulness of God. So we need to be aware of an unbelieving and superstitious faith. I think we've seen quite clearly that this text has a major contrast. Faith versus unbelief. But as I said in the beginning of, of the sermon here, we cannot leave thinking that this is just a moralistic story. That we should be more like Jonathan or tempt to do these sorts of things. There are many traits, to be sure, in Jonathan that are admirable and honorable that we may ought to want to emulate. Uh, emulate. But what this text ought to hit us with is the fact that you and I can't be like Jonathan. We don't have it in us. We are too much like Saul. So what are we to do? Ironically, we are to do exactly what Saul did. We are to run to a battle that's already been won. We're to run to a war just like the Israelites without weapons, carrying only the burdens of our sins and our fears and our failures, knowing that it is on that battlefield by which they are defeated. Not because of any fighting that we do, but because God is already on the battlefield fighting for us. And this battle is not won by confusions or infighting amongst the ranks. It was won by a son, like Jonathan, but far greater. It was in the son of God the Father, Jesus Christ, by which the battle for our faith and against our unbelief is won. In his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus has gone into the garrison of the world and defeated all of the enemies on our behalf. The prince, Jonathan, was pointing towards a greater prince, the prince of heaven, who left his throne to do that which we could not do, to suffer the punishment that we deserved on our behalf, and to rise from the dead, showing his victory and defeat, and giving us the hope of future resurrection. And there's coming a day in which he is coming back, in which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior to the glory of God. We won't see him as a prince. We will see him as the faithful king who, is, who loves us and has freed us from our sin. Verse 23 ends this section by saying, so the Lord saved Israel that day. It was looking forward to the day in which Jesus would spread his arms wide and would say, victory is mine. It is finished. So friends, we can learn from our lesson. We can learn from 
the things that have happened to us in our past. But we should not rely on our own strength, but rather only in our true king, King Jesus, who has gone into battle for us. Let's pray.